Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tanellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Today's guest is a secondary school English teacher by day who, since the age of three, has wanted to work in a bookshop surrounded by her own work. She studied creative writing at the University of Melbourne and wrote her thesis on teen fantasy fiction. In 2018, she was awarded the Ian Wilson Memorial Fellowship from the May Gibbs Children's Literature Trust, which helped her write her debut novel, due to be published by Affirm Press on the 29th of September. A fantastical adventure set in what was once an iconic Melbourne store known as the Coles Book Arcade and which was reputedly said to have been the world's largest bookstore. The book is called The Grandest Bookshop in the World and the author is Amelia Mellor. Welcome to the podcast, Amelia. Thank you, Claudine. I'm delighted to be here. It's wonderful to have you. And I wanted to say congratulations on this fabulous novel, your debut. How are you feeling about its impending release into the world? I won't lie. I do have a bit of stage fright. Um, It seems that every day there's something new to do to promote it for, you know, for a different bookseller or a different website who's getting excited about it. Um, So, yeah, it's delightful. And I've seen comments uh, online from people and I'm starting to receive (laughs) fan mail from booksellers. So I am excited, but it is all suddenly happening at once. (laughs) So coming up to the big day, I'm definitely having a little bit of stage fright. I don't know why, because the horse has bolted and I've wanted the horse to bolt this whole time, but now it's real and I'm a little bit like, oh, my big moment, here it comes. I feel like I should feel more positive, but I am a little bit nervous. Look, I'm pretty sure you're not alone in feeling the way that you're feeling and it's often why I ask the question. The thing is, I, I, when I was, you know, for the years and years that I was writing other manuscripts and stuff, I psyched myself up for the strong possibility that it was going to be be a modest success for my first book, but it's getting a lot more attention than I ever thought, and uh, I am blown away by the response. (laughs) Now, Amelia, I was fascinated to learn about the inspiration behind this gorgeous story about the Cole family and the magnificent bookshop established by Edward William Cole in 1873, a world-famous bookstore by all accounts, which occupied the site where David Jones now is in Burke Street Mall in the heart of Melbourne. So I wanted to know, can you tell me how you came to learn about the store and uncover the story of the Cole family? I came to learn about it when I went to my friend's house and she had... Cole's funny picture book on her shelf. She had recently found out about Mr. Cole and was a little bit obsessed. And I spotted it and I would I wanted to know, you know, what it was and I started leafing through it and it was so whimsical and bizarre. We started talking about it and she read a little article that she'd found about it. And my first reaction was, How have I never heard about this? My second reaction was this would make a really fantastic middle grade story. (laughs) I couldn't believe it had actually existed. It sounded like Wonka's Chocolate Factory or or the the Magic Faraway Tree, you know, all these little different departments and each of them is their own world and they come together in this 
massive emporium. And then she actually, I actually had the title before I had any of the characters, except for maybe Mr. Cole, but she read out the ad to, for the opening of the 1883 arcade, which was the big one, because there were some smaller ones at various times. But the 1883 one on Burke Street Mall was advertised as Cole's new book arcade will open on Cup Day. It is the finest site in Melbourne and the grandest bookshop in the world. And I looked at my friend, I was like, and that's the title. What a great title. And she goes, it is, isn't it? You writer, you. Uh, and I <laughs> sort of went, oh, yeah, look, I'll scribble something down and then I'll put it aside. But then the following week, we went to the Melbourne Museum. We saw the wonderful Symphonian. That's the music box. We saw the mechanical chicken that laid the tin eggs with little treats and toys inside. I mean, it doesn't work anymore, but it did back in Mr. Cole's day. Oh, they have the little the little sailor dolls that turned the signs outside. So we, we went and saw the museum. We went and saw the last traces in situ of the book arcade, which is Howie Place as a sandstone building and a glass roof. But that's all that's still there of that. And we sort of, you know, looked at some of the other old buildings and we ended up at the State Library where I found the biography uh, by Cole's grandson, who was named after him. His name was Edward William Cole Turnley. And he wrote this wonderful biography, and I read that, and I found out. When I found out that not only was Mr Cole this amazing historical figure, and not only did he have this fantastic shop, when I found out that he actually lived there with his wife, and his six kids, I knew it was going to happen. It wasn't just an idea scribbled in my, you know, story ideas folder. It was going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Now, when I was doing a bit of reading about the arcade and, and the bookstore, it sounded to me like Mr. Cole was an extraordinary and visionary man in many respects. He believed in the power of education and advocated for a peaceful world without borders and was fiercely opposed to the white Australia policy. He sounded like a novelist's dream. Yes. Uh, I, in those early stages of research, I was sort of bracing myself for some dark, horrible secret because I have been fascinated by the Victorian era for a long time, partly because it was a time of such dramatic contrasts and, you know, you've got this beautiful material culture contrasted with awful oppression and hardship. So I'm fascinated by it, but I was expecting, you know, I might disambiguate the arcade from the true history, but then I found out Mr. Cole was this wonderful person and occasionally I found things in his writings that made me cringe by modern standards but for his day he was such a benevolent and open-minded person so that was a a relief and b I kind of loved him I was I was a fan it was good to discover that there was no I thought maybe was there a freak show in the Room of Illusions, maybe? Or, or you know, did he cheat on his wife? I was looking for something. <laughs> I was looking for something because I was like, there's no way this guy is this good. There's no way this family is this good. There's got to be something going on behind the scenes. But there really wasn't. They were just this wonderful, egalitarian, I guess, They were just this wonderful family. They all got on so wonderfully. There was the tragic death of one of the children, Ruby. It wasn't controversial. It was just 
tragic. So I was very happy when I discovered that the Coles were nice people and I felt free to write about them when I knew that. Fantastic. So with all of that in mind, Amelia, can you tell us a little bit more about your story? Okay. Well, it is historical fantasy. So it is not the true story of the Cole family because most of what happened to the Cole family was very good and, you know, good for them. Uh, doesn't make for a great plot because there was no conflict. The story takes place in a magical version of Melbourne in 1893 and it focuses on two of Mr Cole's children, Pearl and Valley. It's three years after their sister Ruby has passed away. They discover that their father, who is an idealist, has made a magical deal with a sinister and mysterious person calling himself the Obscuro Smith. The thing about Mr. Cole being such an idealist is that sometimes things go wrong. And where the Obscuro Smith is concerned, things always go wrong. And what starts to happen is, in payment for bringing Ruby back from the dead, the Obscuro Smith starts to drain the life from Mr. Cole and the book arcade because they're, you know, they're so linked that it's almost like the book arcade has an aspect of Mr. Cole's conscience or spirit. To save their father and their home, Pearl and Valley strike their own deal with the Obscuro Smith. <laughs> and that's where things start to get crazy. They decide to play a game, seven rounds in different departments of the arcade, where they have to complete seven challenges before the rainbow signs all around the book arcade fade away. But there's as there always is with the Obscura Smith, there is a catch. If they fail, they won't only lose their father and the book arcade, but they'll forget that either of them ever existed. So that's how it goes. And I really enjoyed writing it. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> sounds like you did. <laughs> When I was reading it, the book felt a little bit like um, a Harry Potter story and say, you know, the Spiderwick Chronicles. It was filled with fantasy, adventure and kids who saved the day. So I wanted to ask you, was it always your intention to write a kids novel of this kind or was it more a response to what you knew and learned about the arcade and the Cole family? Well, I have been writing for kids and teens for a while and I sort of always wanted to go into that. But when I found out about the arcade... There was, there was no doubt. I thought, this is a middle-grade concept. This is a middle-grade book. It's that kind of colourful, magical world. And also, Mr Cole was very into good, clean fun. So I thought for YA, it was a bit young and a bit sort of there wasn't enough complication I didn't think there was a, enough about how complicated the world is which sounds weird because the the world of the book is very complicated in YA you grapple with some aspects of life that are a bit different you know coming to terms with sexuality and all of those kinds of things and the arcade just didn't seem right for that kind of starting to explore adult concepts even though you know I do explore some concepts like some life lessons, I guess. I thought, you know, the focus on family and the kind of world that the arcade was, it was built for children. 
I felt like it, it definitely was a middle grade concept. Now, as you said, this was an historical fantasy novel and there are many details in your story that are based in fact. For example, the tokens that Mr Cole created that could be used to store credit and also, interestingly, the fact that he advertised for a wife. So I was wondering if there was any more of those like little tidbits of detail that you could share with us now. Oh my goodness. You would be surprised how little of it I made up. Um <laughs> I had someone ask just yesterday, were there really monkeys in the book arcade? There were. I did not make up any of the departments. The only thing I made up about the departments in the book arcade was where they were and who worked where and what was there at what times. Like I sort of just put them all together from different times and uh, and different areas of the arcade. But I did not make up the monkeys. I did put them in a bit of a nicer environment. They were in quite a small cage in real life but there were live monkeys in the book arcade that they really had a band they had the fernery uh, with the talking parrots in it my version's a little bit bigger and sort of got a magical TARDIS element to it but that was really there the tea salon was really there and it was established in sort of the later 1890s uh, actually as a statement against racism because there was, you know, growing uh, antipathy towards the Chinese. So Mr Cole started this tea salon in order to bring in some Asian culture, I suppose, although it was still very English in terms of the menu. But the decor was sort of all Indian and Chinese things and, and there was a multicultural staff at the book arcade as well. A lot of the family anecdotes from the Turnley biography made it into my book. Mm-hmm. So things that the things that the children got up to, like the time that Pearl and Valley's older brother Eddie launched a springy snake in front of a horse in the street and made it bolt all the way down oh Burke Street. <laughs> I absolutely fell in love with Mrs. Cole when I found out what kind of person she was. She was a socialite. She was fiercely loyal to Mr. Cole and she had all these wonderful phrases. She sort of had a catchphrase. She would often say that she had a brainwave. Um, she wrote in her original letter to Mr. Cole, I must warn you, I'm rather hard to please. Um, <laughs> all of these aspects sort of made it in. Some of the, the little games and jokes that the family get up to are from Mr. Cole's books and from the Turnley biography. And I got a lot of the puzzles in the story, the challenges that Pearl and Valley have to win. I got a lot of those from Cole's Funny Picture Books as well. You would be surprised how little I made up because there was just so much wonderful material to work with. So I guess that leads me to ask you, Amelia, how do you find the balance between fact and fiction in your storytelling? Honestly, I wasn't that concerned with striking a balance. I just wanted to use the bits that I thought were interesting. (laughs) Um, I did speak to a descendant of... Mr. Cole, Linda's granddaughter and Turnley's daughter, and she is coming to my launch on Wednesday. I mean, I was already planning to take license with the Cole family and their story and the fact that there's magic in it, but she she was happy for me to do pretty much anything I liked, although I was quite amused. She said, just do one thing for me. Don't call him Edward, because apparently everyone called him Cole. So that was easy because... It's from the children's perspective, so I call him Pa most of the time. But I thought that was an interesting detail and I, and I 
felt like I had her blessing to run with it. So I wasn't looking to strike a balance between fact and fantasy. I was always planning to include a historical note at the end to clear up anything I lied about, basically. There's much to love about your book, Amelia, but the thing that I loved most was that not only can kids learn about something that was important both historically and culturally to our country, but it gives us a glimpse into a bygone era. A world where kids had to use their imaginations, where the internet and social media didn't dictate how to think and behave. Now, as a school teacher, was that something you consciously wanted to explore? No, not really. I did want to explore the contrasts between then and now. But when I started it, I wasn't a teacher yet. I had sort of just started my master's and I didn't want to elevate the past above the present. Uh, in any way. I want to sort of convey that there's something lovely about both of them. On the one hand, I think kids probably played outside a lot more back then, but at the same time, in many ways, it was a very brutal time to be alive. Girls were very restricted in, in what they were able to do in their lives. Disease and physical peril were a lot more common back then. One in six kids back then died before they reached the age of 10. I was mindful when I was writing this that I wanted to make it sound like a wonderful, wanted to make the arcade sound like a wonderful place, but I didn't want to say everything was better in the good old days and the best time that's ever existed is gone and you're living in the end of the world. I didn't want to do that. I feel like children and young people speaking for myself, um, just get that message way too often. I did want to convey that there were contrasts and I did want to depict a time that was different, but I didn't want to make it look better than today. And I didn't want to say, you know, that it was particularly dark and horrible because life for the Coles wasn't. But, I, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to explore something lovely about both of them. You very interestingly spoke about, you know, the challenges that Pearl and Valley were set by the Obscuro Smith and, um, you know, I loved those riddles and the clues. Yeah, they reminded me of those brain teasers that you get asked in trivia quizzes, except they were much harder and these were designed for kids to solve, which was incredible to me. But so many Australian books in the last couple of years have used the language of flowers as a theme and you have to in your book. Tell me, how did you come to this decision and why was this important? Well... It was one of the things that was in Cole's funny picture book. He actually included a dictionary of flowers. Gardening and, and flowers were a great hobby of Cole's. Um, he actually, one of the reasons he moved out of the arcade after uh, Mrs. Cole passed away was that he didn't have a big enough space for a garden in the flat in the arcade. Um, and he had a massive, massive garden at his home uh, in Essendon at Earlsbury Hall, which is now a girls' school. The language of flowers has fascinated me for a while because I love secret codes. And with the riddles and the puzzles and the flowers being a secret code, I was a massive fan of Deltora Quest uh, when I was a kid. So for a long time, I really wanted to do something like that in something that I wrote because flipping through them and reading them and trying to solve them was so much fun for me when I read those books. The decision to use the language of flowers was really just so I could get another thing about secret codes in there and, 
another fact about the Victorian era and another element of uh, Cole's works, I guess. Uh, it all just sort of, there, there were several reasons they all just sort of came together that way. As I said in my introduction, you're a secondary school English teacher. So I wanted to ask, do you draw inspiration for your writing from your work? Well, being a teacher and being a writer, they are very complementary roles. One thing that teaching constantly reminds you of is the psychology of children. I think if you don't spend a lot of time around kids, you're at risk perhaps of forgetting what they're like and, and of writing child characters that maybe aren't authentic. But one thing that really stays at the forefront of my mind, I guess, when I go from school and come home and write a little bit is people talk about teenage angst and stuff, but they do have fun. Teenagers and kids, they, they want to have fun. They're playful. They're silly. Even when they're, you know, even when they're 15, they're still <laughs> mucking around and laughing and Something that frustrates me in a lot of YA, particularly recently, is that the kids never seem to have any fun at all. Yeah. And what, emo. not what? Oh, they're so emo. <laughs> uh, and that's not what I see at all. Even the quiet kids, they're having fun, even when they're supposed to be working. You know, <laughs> they're still having fun. They're maybe just not having fun as loudly as some of their classmates, but they're still children and they still want to play and have fun and be silly and you know it's not all it's not all as serious as I think it's often made out to be particularly in fantasy fiction I certainly don't base my characters on anyone from school I think that's a very fraught <laughs> situation um and I don't, I don't use lines that they say, uh, but I do try to keep their their habits and their mannerisms and and their psychology in mind, and try not to try not to make them come across too serious, but also not too old or too young. Indeed. Now, do your students know you've written a book? Absolutely. I never <laughs> shut up about it. They're very impressed, um, and. At my previous school too, they were very impressed, particularly those who love English themselves and want to be writers or creatives themselves. They ask, you know, how's the book, miss? When's it out, miss? The other thing is, because I'm now in a regional school, you know, our school community is, it's not very small, but it is close and you do see people you know at the supermarket. They're very supportive of locals. Lately, I've been running into a lot of people around town who say, you know, I've bought two copies or I've bought six copies. Oh, Got to support them. Um, yeah, yeah. So that kind of community support is really wonderful and it, and it is reflected at school too. Kids have said to me at school, I'm so excited for your book, Miss Mellor. Back when we were doing on-site learning, sometimes on a Friday afternoon with my year sevens, if they'd finished their creative writing, which we did on Fridays, if they'd finished that, I would pull up a riddle from my research or something like that. And the year sevens had a good crack at that. Uh, sometimes if they didn't get it, I would tell them the answer and they'd all go, oh, <laughs> and then they'd say, did you make that one up? You know, when I did, they were like, whoa, that's so cool. 
the year sevens, I have to say, are more vocal about it, which is great because they're in the target age group. But the year nines are interested. The year 11s are interested, even though they're not the target age group. They seem to be very impressed that I've set this goal and gone for it like gangbusters and just persevered and and got it published. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're actually they're really wonderful and they want to know about it. And I am chuffed so I'm glad it gives me an opportunity to talk about it because it's such a massive part of my life lately and I've got to tell someone (laughs) that is so beautiful and what a wonderful role model that you are for all of these kids who might be dreaming a dream themselves and can see that it's never too late to follow your dreams. Oh, thank you. I actually found that with Mr. Cole's story as well. He didn't start selling books until he was 33, and his start in life was a lot tougher than mine. Mm. It's kind of nice to be able to do that for other people as well. Yeah, fantastic. Now, the cover, I have to say, of this book is magnificent. It's a gloriously colourful hardback. And I know lots of authors don't have any input into their book covers these days, but you must have been happy with this one. I was absolutely thrilled. I was aware of, you know, how little authors usually have to do with the design and I was fine with that. I, you know, certainly didn't intend to dictate anything. Publishers know what sells, so I trusted them with that. Uh, I did say it'd be nice if there could be a some kind of tribute on it to Cole's Funny Picture Book, something to link it to that. So I, I think I said maybe a rainbow. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they did such a wonderful job of bringing it to life. There was a, a, a designer and an illustrator. So not only does it have that fabulous rainbow sign, it's also got gold foil, which is something that, Cole's book actually had the fir- the very first edition of Cole's Funny Picture Book in 1879. But not only that, it's got a gorgeous little set of windows into the different departments. But not only that, it's got these adorable characters on it. And they do look a lot like my initial sort of sketches when I when I first was getting to know them. So I am absolutely thrilled with the cover. It's so beautiful. And I think if I wasn't me and I was a customer in a shop, I don't think I could resist it because it's just gorgeous and it sums up what the book arcade and what the book is about so well. I can see this book just flying off the shelves uh, as stocking fillers for kids uh, for Christmas. Honestly, it is just the most gorgeous thing ever. Obviously, now is the time for you to be reveling in your marvellous achievements and to celebrate the launch of this book. But do you have plans for another book somewhere along the line? I certainly do, Claudine. (laughs) I am writing a prequel at the moment which is set in Paddy's Market in 1871. So this is 22 years earlier, uh, before Cole had the book arcade, when all he had was a a book stall in Paddy's Market, which is sort of the spiritual predecessor of the Queen Victoria Market. The hero of this prequel is William Thomas Pike, who was first hired when he was 14. I've made him 12, but he was hired in his early teens to work for Cole. He was his very first employee uh, and longest serving. He was the senior manager 
of Cole's book arcade for his whole working life. And it wasn't until Cole passed away and sort of the business started to be mismanaged that that Pike finally retired. So it's another magical adventure. There's more riddles. There's more uh, challenges. We're with Billy Pike, who is a working class boy. He's the oldest of seven children and there's two more on the way. And as he goes around the market, he meets and is confronted by all of these bizarre characters who, again, were real. There was a a lady wrestler at Paddy's Market. There was a tattoo artist um, just out in the open. Somebody was extracting teeth, claimed that they could do it without causing any pain. Um, Actually, no, no. What he claimed was nobody's ever heard my patients yell. And then he would have a brass band play over the sound of the screams. Paddy's Market is another one of these sort of great settings which has so many interesting little areas to explore. So that's what I'm working on. And and Mr Cole is back, of course, a bit younger this time, and the rascally, dastardly, obscure Smith Magnus Maximilian is back again too. Many writers listen to this podcast, Amelia, and given your experiences of the writing and publishing process so far, What tips would you offer anyone looking to write a novel or to get published? I would say it's important to write with your whole heart, but then remove yourself from the work. So I've found a lot of aspiring writers that I know and and people who've tried and not succeeded in publishing, they get discouraged. And I think part of it is that they hold on to too much of the work and, you know, they find it hard to take criticism because they have put so much of themselves into it, but then they haven't taken themselves out of it at the end of the process. So I guess I would say to aspiring writers, you are not the work. And if someone's criticising your work and giving you feedback, they're not criticising you. And if you don't win that contest or if you don't get that publishing deal or if you don't get that agent you wanted or if your book gets, like one of my manuscripts did, if your book gets to acquisitions and then gets rejected, it's not you that's failed. It's just that the work, for whatever reason, didn't succeed that time and and it might be because of somebody's opinion and it might be just that it wasn't a good fit or it might be that the work itself is not ready to be published, you know, as mine wasn't (laughs) when it got rejected at acquisitions. Not this book, a different book. Know when to step back and absolutely don't take criticism personally. And also, if an idea isn't working, you can abandon it. You can remove yourself from that work and you can put it aside. You can cannibalise that manuscript for something else because I know people call their books their babies and sometimes I call my book my baby, but they're not your babies. They're your work. They're an artistic work and it's not a criticism of you if somebody criticises the work. It's not a failure of you as a person if if your book doesn't get accepted uh for whatever you've submitted it for. I think the key is to be able to step back and to be able to try again 
to be able to put aside work, even if you've worked on it for a really long time, if it's not working, you can put that project aside and you can do something different. I think when people hear, don't give up on writing, they take it a bit too literally. I think there are some times when you need to not give up, but put a work aside, do something else, come back to it, step back and to be able to allow people to make changes to it, um, I think is really important. Uh, I've definitely enjoyed working with my editors. Actually, Claudine, <laughs> I started being part of my school's writers club when I was in just in year seven and it got me used to taking feedback sometimes quite harsh feedback from other teenage girls and I think being able to separate yourself from the work and take criticism and take it into account without letting your self get in the way or without taking it personally I think that's a huge part of being able to succeed as a writer because people give feedback because they want to help you improve it. That said, not all criticism is necessarily right for your book. You have to weigh up what people are saying as well and not necessarily take it all on board, but it's certainly not a reflection on you as a person if your work needs a bit of revision or, or, or needs to sit for a while and you need to come back. Amelia, it's been a delight to chat with you about this gorgeous book. I loved reading it and I will enjoy recommending it to others. I wish you every success with it. Thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books. Oh, thank you so much, Claudine. It's been wonderful. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>